Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 7, 36 through 50. This is what Holy Scripture says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon. I'm David. I'm one of the pastors here. And this afternoon, I have a very important question to ask you that will diagnose your spiritual life. When was the last time you watched a romantic comedy? I would guess that most of us here have some sort of emotion and probably a strong one towards romantic comedies. Some of you hate them. Some of you love them. Just this week, my wife Jessica told me, I kind of feel like watching a rom-com soon. Hint, hint. You might be able to guess what camp that she falls into. And some of you have a complicated relationship with romantic comedies. I count myself as one of you as my general reaction towards rom-coms is, I'll watch it, but not with great excitement, and I'll almost certainly make fun of the cliched plot and the cheesy moments, but secretly, deep down, I'll enjoy it. Just don't make me admit it, which, well, I guess I just did. But maybe those of us who don't like romantic comedies or are reluctant to watch them for whatever reason should lower our resistance and listen to those who like them. In 2014, the University of Rochester published a long-term study where they looked at 174 couples over their first three years of marriage, which is when 24% of couples actually divorce in the first three years of marriage. They found that two intensive therapist-led methods, one focusing on conflict management and the other on compassion training, were effective in reducing 
the divorce or separation rate by half, from 24% to 11% after three years. Both involved weekly lectures, supervised practice sessions, and homework assignments over the course of a month. So fairly a lot of work to do. Yet the surprise of the study was that a third method, watching one romantic comedy a week for five weeks and then working through 12 discussion questions together at home without a therapist present had the same effectiveness in reducing the divorce rate as the other methods. The lead author of the study, Dr. Raghi, had this to say. The results suggest that husband and wives have a pretty good sense of what they're doing right or wrong in their relationships. You might just need to get them to think about how they're currently behaving. Now, this is not to demean professional therapy or the fact that some relationships are deeply complicated and would find little value from this method, but rather, as one article commenting on this study says, romantic movies can be a useful relationship tool because they stir up emotions and allow you to introspect on how you and your partner treat each other. By presenting someone else's relationship with their significant other, romantic movies can cause us to reflect on our own, to be humbled by our failings, and maybe be inspired to change. Today's passage presents to us a woman's relationship with Jesus and the love she has for him. So as we explore this passage together, let it be a way for us to reflect on our own relationship with Jesus and our love for him. And when it comes to our love for Christ, many of us here are in different places. For those of you who are feeling weak in your love for him, I hope you will be inspired, you'll be encouraged. For those of you who have deceived yourselves into thinking that you love Jesus more than you really do, I hope you'll be challenged. And for those of you who have never loved him at all, I hope that you will see that he is worthy of love and there's nothing more important than being in relationship with him. So let's go to God's word and see what it means to love Jesus. The first point is this. We love Jesus when we take costly action. We love Jesus when we take costly action. The scene is set in verse 36. You can follow along on your phones or in your Bibles. And there in verse 36, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee named Simon for a dinner party. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, many people, including the Pharisees, had not yet made up his mind about him. They weren't sure whether he was a friend or an enemy, who exactly he was. So we can say that this invitation was actually a sincere invitation, even though later on the Pharisees would be some of Jesus, would come to oppose Jesus. But at this point, they're just curious about him. They're just trying to figure out, who is this guy? And, and so they invite him to this party. And we know that this party must have been a formal party or, or a banquet because they were reclining at a table. Now, no one really eats like this these days, but in those days, people would sit during a regular everyday family meal, which we still do today. But when it came to a more formal party, people would actually lie on their sides. They would, the, the food might be in the center here, and they would lie with their head towards the food, maybe one hand kind of propped up like this. And with one hand, they would grab the food and, and also gesture and, and talk. And so their feet would be facing away, out away from the, from the center of where all the food and the, t- 
and the, and the table was. And as the party was in full swing, something very unusual happened. In verses 37 and 38, it says, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, according to scholars, it wasn't so shocking that someone uninvited came to the party. That wasn't the shocking part. There's actually some evidence that it was somewhat of a usual practice at that time to, to leave the door open during large parties, especially when there was an important public guest, such as Jesus, and the uninvited were allowed to enter, you know, sit by the walls, kind of listen in on this conversation. It was almost like a community event where it was like an open forum. And, and even for the poor, they could even beg and snatch leftovers from the table. But what was shocking was this woman's presence and her actions. No doubt many, once she entered and began doing what she was doing, were wondering, even whispering, why is she here? Because first of all, this woman had a public reputation as a sinner. The text never tells us exactly what her sin was, but many interpreters think that she was a prostitute, while others leave it open to some other dishonorable occupation. What's more important is that everyone knew who she was and that she was not someone that anyone decent would want to be associated with. And second, the, the other reason why this was shocking was that this was a party at the house of a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a group of Jews known for their strict observance of the law and their upright, moral lives. And probably this party was filled with Simon's fellow Pharisees, other upright religious leaders who would have wanted nothing to do with this woman. And so given who the Pharisees were, it would probably come as no surprise that this woman's presence made them deeply uncomfortable. They were not to be associated in any way with sin. They had to keep themselves pure and ritually, ritually clean. They might have always also worried that maybe their reputation would take a hit when others heard that this infamous woman had showed up at their banquet. But I want us not to focus on the Pharisees, but to focus on the woman. Do you think she wanted to be there? As much as she made the Pharisees feel uncomfortable, I think she had it far worse. As she entered, heads were probably turning away in scorn, eyes were shooting daggers at her, lips were curling in disgust. She was outnumbered and at the mercy of some of the most powerful people of the town. And yet, she was drawn to this house. She willingly entered a place where shame and scorn and hatred would be heaped on her, why would she do such a thing? Because of Jesus. It's clear she came for him. And when she saw him, she came up to him, standing by his feet. Now remember, Jesus is reclining, so that's the first thing she comes to. And when she does, she's so overcome with emotion that she begins to weep and as her tears fall on Jesus' feet, she begins to wipe them away with her hair and to kiss his feet and to anoint them with the perfume that she had brought in an alabaster jar. 
perhaps you'll feel the full weight of her actions. If for a moment, consider yourself doing what she did to someone else. Or consider someone doing what she did to you. How incredibly uncomfortable would that make you feel? What she does to Jesus is an act of love, devotion, and worship. Her love for Jesus is striking and evident. And her love came at cost to herself. It cost her her comfort when she entered into the presence of people who hated and reviled her in order to show love for Jesus. It cost her her emotional composure. How many of us have let other people see us truly weep? We might feel ashamed or vulnerable to let, other, to let ourselves show such strong emotion as this woman did. It cost her what little reputation she had left. In those days, it was a big social faux pas or a big social violation to, to let down her hair in order to wipe Jesus' feet. It cost her her pride. To wash and to kiss feet is a lowly thing to do as washing feet was reserved for servants. And it cost her money as perfume in an alabaster jar meant it was a costly perfume. But for Jesus, all of this was worth it. We see from this woman that we love Jesus when we take costly action. Now, I'm not saying that loving Jesus is all about our action, our works, and doesn't involve our heart. After all, the greatest commandment says in Mark 12:30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. To love Jesus is certainly more than just action, but it's not less. A simple illustration is my relationship with Jessica. I could do all the actions of love without the heart behind it. I could help out at home, I could spend time with her, I could buy her flowers, I could write her cards. And to truly love her, I would need to have the right heart behind those actions. But if I claim to love her, and even tell her that I love you till I'm blue in the face, but never lift a finger for her, never do anything that I mention above, there's no way I actually love her. There are those of you here who claim you love Jesus, but is it just lip service? Out of everyone here, you who claim to love Christ but take no action, do you really love him? And let me just press this point a little further. When was the last time your love for Jesus cost you something? It's ironic that we often qualify love with adjectives such as sacrificial or costly, because the real definition of love always involves self-sacrifice and cost. Some of you claim to love Jesus, but your actions of love only occur when it's convenient. God gets the margins of your life and not the center. He gets the leftovers, but not the main course. Loving Jesus is fine as long as it doesn't interfere with your family, your career, your sleep, your hobbies, your comfort, your ambition. If we only love someone when it's convenient, we know that that is not really love. You may also be wondering, what does it look like to take costly action? You may be challenged or struck by this woman's costly actions of love for Jesus, but you obviously can't do the same thing since Jesus is no longer here on earth. 
Or perhaps you're skeptical and jaded. I've tried being costly for Christ, radical for Christ, and I burned out. Or I'm changing diapers all day and raising kids. Don't tell me costly action means I have to become a missionary or something. Many of us have grown up in the culture of American evangelicalism. And in our American evangelical subculture, costly action has often become closely associated with radical action. Just think back to, for those of you who grew up in the church, to youth retreats, where speakers got you all amped up to do radical things for God's kingdom and to change the world. Costly action meant showy and evident displays of our love for Christ. It means everyone should become a pastor or missionary. It means having no earthly possessions and giving away all that we have. It means every conversation we have should result, should result in sharing the gospel. And let me just say, some of you need to hear that message. Maybe God is calling you to radical action for him. Some of you are living far too comfortably, only loving Jesus when it's convenient, caught up in our society's race to live a secure life and to acquire possessions. Pastor David Platt captures much of this challenge in his book, Radical. But the danger of an unbalanced, radical Christianity is that some of you live under constant, low-level guilt that your life doesn't look more radical. You're just grinding away, trying to provide for your family and raise your kids. And to hear that loving Jesus involves costly, radical action feels crushing. And you've resigned yourself to just being bad Christian. Well, there's another book called Ordinary by Professor Michael Horton. They have similar colors on their covers. I don't know if that's intentional or not. And it's a response to American radical Christianity where bigger and more extreme is better. But Michael Horton reminds us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. While there have been radical Christians who did great things for God, perhaps even catalyzing great movements, God ordinarily builds his church through the humble and the insignificant and through humble and insignificant means. He builds his church through the ordinary means of grace, Sunday worship, the weekly preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper. So to love Jesus with costly action doesn't necessarily mean huge, radical, showy actions. It's often ordinary faithfulness in the small decisions of life. I can't tell you exactly what costly action means for your life, but it could be something that seems as small as a commitment to attend Sunday worship regularly, despite the pull of other activities, because there's certainly a cost to that. It could mean giving up a personal ambition that might uproot your family and instead growing where God has placed you investing in your neighbors and community. It could be the cost of your comfort at our church dinner later tonight. And instead of sitting with the people that is comfortable for you, you reach out to someone who you've seen on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons, but you've never talked to. We love Jesus when we take costly actions that are both radical and ordinary. But an important ask, a question to ask is what motivated this woman? Her actions are evidence of her love, but what was the motivation of her love? What drove her to do what she did? That brings me to my second point. We love Jesus when we grasp 
the greatness of his forgiveness. We love Jesus when we grasp the greatness of his forgiveness. Coming back to our passage beginning in verse 39, Simon sees everything that has happened in his house, and he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Tragically, Simon sees, but he does not see. All he sees is a sinful woman doing some very emotional and proper and uncomfortable actions. And all he sees is that Jesus must be less than a prophet because a true prophet would know these women's sins and would keep her far, far away. The irony is that Jesus is greater than any prophet. He sees into Simon's heart and knows exactly what kind of woman she is. So Jesus, in patience and love, wants Simon to see what he sees and leads him on this path with a simple parable beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replies with the obvious answer, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus tells him, you have judged rightly. But now Jesus makes his teaching a bit more personal. He compares Simon's actions to the woman's actions. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, Simon's actions are really his lack of actions, not giving water for Jesus' feet, not greeting him with a kiss, not anointing his head with oil, were not necessarily rude or disrespectful, but he didn't go above and beyond as a host. He didn't show Jesus any special honor as his guest. And why didn't he, while this woman lavished her love upon him? Why is your love for Jesus weaker than it should be? Jesus gives us this answer, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. One question people often have about this story is, did this woman come to Jesus out of remorse for her sins and was she seeking his forgiveness? Or did she already have a prior encounter with him before this party? where she had already been forgiven of her sins, and so being filled with gratitude and love, she sought him out again. I think the stronger argument can be made that she had already encountered Jesus and experienced forgiveness, especially according to the verse we just read, verse 47. Though it can sound like her actions of love are what lead to forgiveness, it's actually the other way around, as the four can be taken like this. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, as evidenced by the fact that she loved much. And the last part of this verse strongly shows that forgiveness precedes love. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In contrast, this woman was forgiven much, so she loved much. Is your love for Jesus small? Do you want to grow in your love for him? The New York Times column, Modern Love, where people submit stories of love in this modern age is wildly popular. 
It has spun off into a podcast and is now even an Amazon Prime show. Well, 10 years ago, in 2009, Gary Presley retold his story for Modern Love in an article titled, Would My Heart Outrun Its Pursuer? Now, Gary calls himself a near quadriplegic with very limited mobility as a result of childhood polio. And so he has long required a rotating crew of two attendants to transfer him from bed to wheelchair and back. In the mornings, bed to wheelchair. In the evenings, from wheelchair back to bed. And while he would sometimes have female attendants, he, quote, made a very conscious, conscientious effort to avoid any touch, any word that might be construed as improper. But one day, a vibrant, attractive single mother named Belinda showed up as half of his attendant crew, his attendant team. He was immediately attracted, and a friendship grew between them, where she would even come early before her shift began just to chat with him. And eventually, she introduced him to her two sons. And a few months after they met, Belinda said to Gary, I really don't see the chair. I see you. And Gary, in his own words, says, but I didn't believe her then. I had been paralyzed, I had been paralyzed too young when I was too callow in a time and place where most people with disabilities were seen as invalids and shut-ins, passively accepting limitations and retreating behind an accepting smile to avoid injury, neglect, abuse, or rejection. So nearly a decade passes and they maintain their friendship while Gary continued to believe that he was unlovable because of his disability. One day after running an errand together, they quarrel. As they wait in his home for his sons to get out of school, he feels despair because he loves her, but his condition is an impossible barrier and too great a burden for her to love him. He writes, I believed I should not allow her to love me. I held hard to the idea I should be content to ride out the remainder of my life without complaint, a burned out case, an absurd hodgepodge of broken parts. He hated that, quote, I, I would be physically dependent upon those who might love me. I am a chore, an obligation, and I will ever be so. I could not rationalize how a woman might love me and not soon come to hate the millstone I believed myself to be. But in that moment, suddenly, she moved from the couch and across the few steps between us, I opened my arms and she dropped into my lap and put her head on my shoulder. There was no sound, no words between us, only her tears and my silent wonder. Friends, lovers, perhaps that day was a hint that there might be a path through my thicket of my insecurities. I only remember the gift, the magic, the seamless transition from what I could never imagine into that which I will treasure until my last breath. A month later, they were married and have been for over two decades. I found it a moving story because Gary saw himself as so unlovable, as so unworthy of someone else's love, and yet beyond his wildest dreams, the woman he loves loves him back. Of all the people in the world she could have chosen to love, of all the healthy handsome people she could have chosen to love, she chose him. The reality is that we are all deeply unlovable before God. When Jesus tells Simon, he who is forgiven little loves little, 
He's only speaking from a human perspective. All of us who have experienced God's forgiveness have been greatly forgiven, and it should silence us in wonder that Jesus would love us, that Jesus would forgive us. That is, that, that's beyond our wildest dreams. Belinda may have moved a few steps across space to bridge what felt like an infinite gap between Gary and her, at least from his perspective. But we were truly at an infinite distance from God. And so Jesus came to bridge that gap, to pursue us when we were running away from him in sin and rebellion. It is in response to this love, to this great forgiveness, that motivates the sinful woman to seek Jesus out and to give him all her love and devotion for she never knew that she could be loved like this. In our pride, we can forget how sinful we've been in the past and especially downplay our sins in the present. It's why we have confession and assurance as we just went through as part of our Sunday service. It's not meant to be an empty ritual, but a weekly reminder an opportunity to examine ourselves and confess sin that we often gloss over in the busyness of life. The Christian faith is deeply at odds with our culture of positive self-esteem. And critics from the outside and from inside the church can often accuse Christians of being morbidly introspective, always thinking about our sins and failures rather than thinking positively about ourselves. And it's true that Christians can become too focused on their sins and failures. But the solution is not to think less about our sin. We actually need to think more about our sin. But at the same time, think even more about the greatness of God's forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' death and resurrection. We need to follow the wise advice of Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, who said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. Go deep into your sin. Go deep into the free, undeserved forgiveness Jesus offers to us. Free for us, but only earned through his loving action that came at, infinite, at the infinite cost of his life as he took our place and our punishment on the cross. Think deeply about what he has done for you because we will love Jesus deeply when we grasp the greatness of his forgiveness. If you're here today and you've never known his forgiveness, know that Jesus is both willing and able to forgive. He has the power to declare, your sins are forgiven, as he did to that woman in verse 48. For her, it was an assurance of her forgiveness, as well as a declaration to the Pharisees that he indeed had the authority to forgive. They may have questioned who he was. Who is this who even forgives sin? But the Bible reveals that Jesus is God with the power to forgive sin. And for you, if you place your faith in him, if you trust that he is the God who can forgive your sins, his final words to the woman can be his words to you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's now close in prayer. Our Father God, we are in need of you. We need to know once again the depths of our sin.
and the greatness of your forgiveness. Give us eyes to see, expand our hearts to know that we are truly forgiven through Christ. And let that result in costly action, not, not as a way to try to repay you, but purely out of gratitude and of love for what you have done. You loved us at great cost to yourself. And so when we love you in return, it is, it is really no cost to us, even if it feels costly in the moment. We thank you for the greatness of your love and the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.